Hey, what's up, everybody? Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Roots Americana singer, songwriter, president, founder, curator of Four Chords and the Truth, Eliminate Factory Music founder, associate director, publisher engagement strategy for Canadian Musical Reproduction Rights Agency, Songwriters Association of Canada Board of Directors member, Seneca College lyric professor, Andrea Anglin. In this newest episode, Andrea joined me to talk about her 2004 record, Lemonade, 10-year hiatus, Four Chords and the Truth, hardest parts of being an independent artist, importance behind putting music out on her own terms, and more, as well as her newest album, Evidence of Love. And now with that being said, hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrea. Hello, Andrea. Hello. I'm sorry for the big lung. I mean, that's just, I think, somewhere online. <laughs> no, honestly, I have no problem with it because that's what makes a really good conversation with someone that holds such... Um, high responsibilities and 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 um an immense uh collection of resume stuff that you have now. Um, I mean, how do you handle all of these responsibilities? I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, people say, and I often say, I wear a lot of hats, but I don't wear them all at the same time. And and I mean, I think that's the key, right? And I don't make records very often. You know, I'm working on it, doing industry work. I do a lot of volunteer work within the industry. All of it comes from me being a singer songwriter and a creator at the kind of at the at the base of all of it. Right. So, you know, I end up doing some stuff for CMRA over the, the board of directors of the SAC. It's just, I do all of the things, but when I'm doing one thing, I'm focused on it. You know, keeping in mind the information or the learning I've had elsewhere, so that helps support you know whatever I'm going to bring to the table. So, uh, so right now, I, you know, it's my first record in like ten years. So, I've been writing for other people, uh, and, and yeah, I do a lot of work for CMRA and help help support my fellow creators. And so, I don't sleep a lot, but I. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, I guess the important thing is like, I, I mean, there there is importance of getting enough rest and, and getting enough, I guess, I guess, fuel to to get back up again the next day and, and, and keep doing it over and over again. But also, I feel like it's that part of the, the duty that you have to, that you sort of find the the urge to get up every day and enjoy what you're doing right like it's it's not as though like you're you're hating what you're doing no, um, I love it because all of it. because there are there are places and stuff that you're going to do along your life where you're not going to like it but it's it's worth it at the end of the day when you sort of reflect back on it you're like man those experiences really helped what i'm doing now um and then it becomes a full circle moment right i mean that that has to be similar to you Absolutely. But you know what? I honestly can't say, and I'm really, I don't know if it's, it's a combination. I do know it's a combination of luck, of hard work, of um, having a great community of people who support creators and me. And, but it's, again, it's that thing about only wearing certain hats. I mean, when I started in the music industry on the business side, I was a singer songwriter. I was promoting an album and so forth. I needed a day job to kind of like pay for the stuff and make a living, right? A lot of songwriters, a lot of artists don't talk about that. Most of them have some kind of side hustle or side gig, right? And it's maybe not a career thing, but it's, you know, they're working wherever to make ends meet between records. And that was the original reason, you know, I started doing 
some of my industry stuff, not the volunteer stuff, because that's in my heart. But as I started to do work at CMRA, for example, I learned that, wow, you know what? It's all music. I'm a part of the ecosystem. So I can just do the creative thing, right? Or I can be a part of creating the tools that creators use and that help support the industry. And then I can help, you know, move it forward. I'm in a I'm in a co-writing session and someone doesn't understand what a mechanical right is, I'm able to explain it to them. So I feel like it's a very, although it wasn't accepted years ago, you know, you had to be this dedicated creator only. And if you did any business, if you had a day job, you weren't making it or whatever. I don't look at it that way. And I don't think anybody does anymore. I think everybody has a side hustle. Look, Rihanna has a side hustle. Mind you, she made it as a gazillionaire, as a songwriter first and an influencer but now Fenty and all of the side businesses. I don't look at any of them as side businesses. They're all just part of a, whole, a, 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 a holistic approach to working in an industry. That's, and, and therefore, I don't really hate any of it. I mean, I go back in the day where I was, you know, working at various jobs. And I think it's all how you look at it. Even if there's a job that, you you know, you're not loving at any given moment, if you look at it as having a purpose and maybe your greater purpose is whether it's serving your community or, you know, paying from that, for that record you want to get out or that demo or whatever that hell, if it's a vacation for that matter, there's a purpose. You don't have to hate anything. I I don't know. I I really believe that. No, it, 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 it just listen to, you you speak about, I guess the, the experiences you've, you've already had in your career it seems nowadays when you're sort of like now reflecting back on those moments, mm-hmm. there there seems to be that validity now in your, I guess, in your public speaking abilities to be able to tell people, well, this is what I've done during my life, but I still yeah. don't regret what I have, I've, I've done. Um, and there seems to be like you've really enjoyed sort of the ride and, and the thrill of it all while also being able to handle the adversity of like we're going to talk about the i guess the the, the 10 year hiatus of of not being yeah. able to release music since your last album and it's crazy to be able to to think about that moment when you first released your first album and now you sort of took this whole break to really get an understanding of what you want to do for your life and and being able to create the music that you i guess purposefully thought through yeah to be able to release the people and to make people understand, well, this is not who I've turned into, but at the same time, understand the importance of, I guess, the, I guess the rebranding of it, um, uh, of the aspect of, of music, but also reinventing yourself as, as sort of this, this new sort of artist, but also understanding your roots. Um, and that goes into sort of the style of music sort of, that you release nowadays, um, with your new album, Evidence of, of of Love. But tell me about what was the importance behind taking that hiatus from music? Was it sort of the, the break you needed or was it sort of just to understand your music? I mean, I, I've always, look, I'd be releasing more if I could. But again, I have a lot of different responsibilities. I do a lot of writing, I write, do writing for other people. And as it kind of morphed into this holistic career where I'm also writing for other people, um. I realized that it's okay to have those two different kind of places, right? So I'll write a song with and for other people. I'm a writer at the end of the day. I'm trying to find the truth. 
And I want to try to find and present the truth in an interesting and a creative way. And sometimes when I'm writing for other people or just when the song comes and I know it's for me, I know it's something that's so personal that either I wouldn't put pitch it or it's just too personal to pitch really. Um, and it didn't come out of a session with somebody else. It just came out of an observation or, or you know, or what have you. Um, I'll kind of save those songs, right? It's not even that I save them, it's just that I don't pitch them and they kind of collect them over time. And, you know, making a record as an independent artist is also a little bit heartbreaking. I mean, you have to take a big chance. You hire a lot of third-party people. You have to save the money to do it, right? It's not like you can just put out a record every day of high quality. You have to hire all the people. You have to pay them well. That's, I mean, that's the way you should do it if you can, right? So I, I take my time. It's important to find the right producer. It's important to get the right team together. More importantly for me, it's about the right collection of songs. And I, you know, I started writing really for this. There are little songs that I was collecting along the way um, before the pandemic. Then that happened, right? So I probably would have put a record out in 2020. I'd started doing some recording. Even uh, I Won't Forget About You, I did in 2017, 18. And that was, you know, a single that was meant to be on a record. And then I didn't make the record. You know, other things got in the, got in the way. And and so then last year, over the pandemic, then I ended up writing, you know, songs like My Parents' House and and then Evidence of Love. And for me, it's always been, I'll write and write and write and write. And I don't feel this urgent need to put something out to the public until I do. And then when I do, and it's usually I write a particular song. I felt it when I wrote My Parents' House. And then I felt it even more when I wrote Evidence of Love. And then I was like, okay. Now it's time. And now I have the title. Now I know what the album's about. And I know how to arrange the rest of the songs, right? So, I mean, five of them I wrote myself, and those were clear. I was going to put them on the record. And then it was looking around for the two other songs that fit the idea of the album. And so that's how I ended up with the rest of them. But, yeah, I didn't mean to take 10 years off. I just, it just kind of happened that way. I mean, I took 10 years off between Lemonade and Hope and Other Sins, too. And... Again, it's just, it just happened that way. Yeah, and that's that's interesting how you mentioned all of those stuff. But if you don't mind me asking, because I, I feel there there is a part of um, of what you said and sort of this idea came into my head of, of the, the thought of, I guess, putting music out to the public is not a necessity of... of just an in the moment thing where you have to release music just because people want it. Um, what I've gotten out of your answer was sort of this thought of, while it's important to understand that importance of the demand of people wanting music all the time, but it just doesn't work out that way because it seems like when you release music, you sort of are aware of, of, of what type of music you want to create, who you want to work with, um, finding the right people to do it with, but also doing it on your own terms. I mean, that's yeah. important as well, because I remember Selena Gomez, when she took her hiatus of music, um, before, I think before she released her album Rare, um, I was listening to an interview she was doing with Ryan Seacrest, and they were asking her about, um, why did you take that break? Uh, why did you feel that you want to release this album now? Because she says that she had songs 
on the back burner um, that she wanted to release. But in that era, she didn't feel the story matched what her story was in that moment. And then when she came to this, I guess, battling this lupus disorder thing that she's been dealing with, yeah. she sort of went back to it and said, that's not my story. This is my story. So I want to change and take the time to be able to understand what story I want to tell, reflecting what I'm dealing with life in right now. Um, yeah. And so that brings me to the point of, you know, you first released your, I guess it was, it was the album in 1999. I think it was heart wide open, but now I like, I couldn't even find that album anymore. Um, but, uh, and then you released sort of the 2004 album Lemonade. Um, yeah. Tell me the importance behind this album and what do you remember from those days? Gosh, I mean, so there's, there's so much, um, but there's also noise outside. Can you hear that? Is that wrecking the, the sound? Sound like there's noise outside. No, it's fine. No, I don't. Okay, good. Um, I just wanted to make sure. Um, yeah, so Lemonade, it was interesting. Uh, Heart Wide Open got on the first song on the radio, and then there was some kind of attention. And I got courted by, you know, major record label and while I was making Lemonade. And that was, the plan was for it to come out on a, on a, on a major. And the week or so, just when it was done, and this happens to a lot of artists, the person who was signing me at that label let me know he was leaving, going to another company. So I end up with this record. And then he he's like, but you know what? I want to manage you. So we're going to start our own company. He's going to start his own company, I should say. And he had two artists he was going to work with. So let's do a deal with Maple Music for uh, P&D, which is pressing and distribution. And, and we'll own the marketing and we'll do everything by we, his company. Um, and it was, it was great for me because my record was already made. I worked with my producers. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. And then I, you know, I had this new label who wanted to market it and take it on as is. And then, so we signed the deal. We had all the marketing money. I was in Los Angeles doing a bunch of work and moving drive, you know, doing showcases and things were going well. Song was on the radio. And about two weeks before the record came out, I got a call from him saying he was out. He took a day job, decided that he couldn't make the investment and that he and his partner were closing up shop. So I ended up with this record and zero marketing money, zero anything. He was gone. He evaporated. I actually had a, a showcase to do in Newfoundland at the East Coast Music Awards, and he was supposed to have booked flights and hotels, and I was stranded in L.A. And I had to use my marketing money, a little bit that I had, to kind of fulfill some commitments. So that's the reality of what happened. And like so many artists, you can't you can't control other people, right? So I was left with this little record. It's I got some good reviews. It um, I didn't have the the time to find a team to help promote it. And none of these are excuses. Like that's just what happened. But what ended up happening? Somebody in the states heard it. They put it in a Grammy focus group. And that ended up on the first Grammy ballot, this independent record two years later. And then a whole bunch of industry people ended up hearing this songs and went, oh, will you write with this artist? And will you write with that artist? In the meantime, I had to take a day job. And to be honest, and I really haven't talked about this a lot, 
right around that same time. Uh, and the Selena Gomez story really, really resonates with me, but I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, very severe, very, very bad, very much like what she has, a kind of a form of lupus. And so, you know, for me at that point in time, it stopped everything. I was still writing, but in terms of like, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to be healthy. I, you know, needed health insurance it was just a thing. So I am fine now. I am perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, for a number of years that I really didn't know what was going to happen. So I couldn't, you know, risk kind of everything on just doing music. So, uh, so I've made the best of it. I and mean, that's what Lemonade's really ended up being about, you know, it's making the best with what you have, trying to find the upside. And, you know, honestly, when, when things like that happen, you have two choices. You can look for a purpose and a meaning and then be thankful that you made it and that, you know, you're healthy and, and you can continue to make music and, and use it to inspire people or you can give up. And so giving up is not an option. For sure. And uh, with that being said, I, I, I really want to uh, take a listen to this song that you released off that album, uh, Lemonade. And I think it's a title track of, of, of the yeah. Lemonade album. Um, it's it's a really fun song, and to be able to listen to it is is um is is really cool. So I'll, I want to I want to play that right now to be able to um just listen to. Well, I mean, that's that's the song Lemonade from um, Andrea England's uh, 2004 Lemonade. Um, I mean, that's that's got to bring back a lot of memories to be able to listen to that back. Um, it's 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 cool to be able to hear that in 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 real time now. And um, I mean, what sort of was the process behind creating that title track? Uh, lemonade was that sort of a thing that just sort of came up oh. in the moment in those in those early days and but just walk me through that because i'm interested in that yeah so you mentioned heart wide open so the honestly maybe i should write a book but um after heart wide open came out the day i received delivery of the ep i got um t-boned by a vehicle and it got in a very 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 severe car accident <laughs> i should say very very severe i mean i lost my memory I hurt my back. It, took, it was about a year of physio to get better. And during that time, I had to move from Ottawa where I was living. I'm from Nova Scotia, but I had been living in Ottawa. And I had to move home. And I didn't have a keyboard where I was staying. And so I got a guitar. And while I was recovering from an injury, I couldn't sit up for great amounts of time. And if you can't sit up, you can't play the piano. So I would lay on the couch or my bed while I was recovering. Um... And again, it was five, six hours of physio every day for months and months. It took about a year and a bit to get better. I would write songs. And I wrote a lot of the lyric for Lemonade during that time. And 
it's interesting because later on when I got sick, uh, I listened to the lyric now and I, even then my whole thought was, it's all about lemonade, you know? It's not about the choices. Sometimes, you know, you can only control what you can control. So, yeah, I mean, I ended up writing a lot of those songs during that time, went back to Ottawa, finished the song musically, because I had kind of a melody and idea for it with my my co-writer, then co-writer Dave Malkin in Ottawa, and then ended up kind of writing a bit of the bridge, I think, and the vibey bit of it with um, Creighton Doan, who ended up co-producing some of that record and he played drums on it uh so that's how that happened and here's so here's an interesting thing that's very apropos of this week the third ver i was very influenced by cheryl crow at that time sarah mclaughlin jewel like all of that big sort of influx of an alanis morissette you know female singer songwriters speaking their truth and at that time i was really moved by the fact that cheryl crow had released her second record and she made a comment about walmart and the record label and walmart wouldn't carry her record and it was going to be the best-selling record of the year if walmart carried it and walmart said to her and there was a oh my gosh when i really think about it she made a comment about buying guns at walmart and they said you need to change the lyric of that song or we won't we won't carry your record and she refused and she lost millions of sales because of it. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Here's an artist standing up for her, the integrity of her work. So in the last verse of that song, I, I, there's a lyric where I'm talking about, I went down to my favorite Walmart, went down to the Walmart store and my favorite record wasn't there. And it's referring to that. It's a very subtle reference to Shell Crow. And this Friday... I'm so excited to say I've been invited um, to go see her and be inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'm going to go to that concert and watch her be inducted. Somebody who really influenced me. I'm very happy for her. But yeah, that Lemonade song, it's kind of a full circle week here. Honestly, it it it, it certainly sounds like that from, from the way you're sort of expressing the, the, the reflection back to that album. Um, but that's really cool to be able to to now like hearing that story of Cheryl Crow and, and now hearing the full circle moment of of you going to see her at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's even cooler to be able to to be able to en en envision that moment when you first heard that record uh, from Cheryl Crow and then you hear that story and then now you'd be invited to to go see her being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And and it certainly sounds like from this album when you're listening to it, it it certainly sounds like Alanis Morissette vibes. It does sound like sort of this, I guess this Natasha Bedingfield vibes as well. Um, when she first released Unwritten, um, which is one of my favorite songs. Um but also there's another song off this album that I was I was leading up to before we started recording this, I guess. Uh, recording this interview, I was I was telling you about. It. I was saying this song reminds me of Big Girls Don't Cry, um, oh. so I'm gonna I'm gonna play a snippet of that song because I feel so captivated by that song because the tune oh. of the song reminds me of Big Girls Don't Cry. So I'm gonna play it for you now because it's interesting to me. Okay, so this is the song I was referring to. Whatever it takes to help you sleep at night and, and make it through your day But if you believe 
Well, that was Andrea England's song, if you believe, off of her album, 2004 album, Lemonade. Um, that song, the chord progression I was talking about, sort of gives me the vibes of Big Girls Don't Cry. Um, because it's big girls don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And I guess the chord progression, when you hear it uh, from the beginning of the song of Big Girls Don't Cry, and then you listen to this song, the chord progression seems so similar. And that's what's so intriguing about music in general, because when you hear certain songs and you sort of like, you sort of like picture oh, who have I heard this song from before? And then you sort of, you, you sort of sit back and you, you sort of start listening to it, continuing to listen to it. And then you sort of be like, Oh, I think I know who sang this song before. Um, and then you sort of pull up on your phone who you're thinking about and you're like that this song definitely like hits a chord and reminds me of of that song um that's like it's it's so interesting like tell me about that song briefly because i'm i'm interested in that i mean you know what i don't know what came first that song would have been written i'm gonna say 2002 what before big girls don't cry i think um, or right around. I don't know when Big Girls Don't Cry came out. It probably came out after that. But I mean, so many of us are interested in the same, or not interested, influenced by a similar body of work. Like if you're listening to the radio, you know, back then, uh, it wasn't streaming services, right? I mean, iTunes, I believe 2004 started. So this was just pre streaming and i mean napster was just not even a thing and every everything was still records and you know so a lot of us at that time were really influenced by the hits that were played on the radio stations that we had access to and a lot of that is very similar in canada the us and the uk so a lot of songwriters were interested in the same not interested again influenced by uh surrounded by different movements whether it be a move to more you know, relatable, emotional, expressive lyrics. And it, uh, you look at Cheryl Crow Strong Enough, which came out probably well, a couple of years before that, very acoustic, right? So, I, you know, I, I can hear the similarity for sure. But stylistically, we we're probably influenced by some of the same people. Absolutely. Well, I mean, with that being said, I want to like quickly touch on evidence of love. Uh, tell me about sort of uh, of of the inspiration behind that album. And um, there's a really cool song that I, I was I was teasing for the podcast episode that we're having together. Um, there was a song, "My Parents' House," and it sort of was this reflection to be able to, I guess, to un understand that like this was sort of the album that you were making on your own terms as we were discussing during this this conversation about doing it on your own time and your own, I guess, putting it back to, I guess, the, the, the Taylor Swift sort of talk nowadays where people were like, well, uh, she had her, she had her, she didn't own the records now um, uh, with, 
with Scooter Braun. And now she's re-releasing all of those records that she did back in those days and doing yeah. it on her own terms. And she owns it now. Um, yeah. So how much of this, I guess, album, Evidence of Love, um, h- how impactful was this sort of in, in, in the process, but also as a whole for you? I mean, it's really important that that the music I make is authentic and it's honest. And I bring that to like trying to get to the truth. You know, it's a preoccupation, I think, with a lot of songwriters. It's a real preoccupation with me. But trying to get to the truth and be specific enough that it's, you know, interesting, hopefully, and visual so that you can picture it. Um, but that it's universal enough that other people can relate. So that song, you know, when the pandemic happened and my parents live in Nova Scotia and I was in Toronto and, you know, they're getting up there in years. And I, I just remember, and people, young people, people of all ages were dying and were sick and none of us could travel at that time. And I just remember thinking and reminiscing on them and when am I going to get to see them again? And then I had a note in my uh, phone, phone app, you know, notes where I keep a lot of song titles and song ideas. And I had seen a couple of years prior to that, a Jan Arden interview. And she was talking about how she built a house across the way from her parents. She loved living across from them. And that, uh, you know, the light kept, gave her some comfort. She knew that they were there and that one day that light was going to go out and she didn't know what she was going to do at that point. And, you know, when her parents passed, and that idea always kind of, I it really resonated with me because my parents have this porch light. They live at the top of a hill and, you know, there's so much hope and love and, and home in that light. And people always leave the light on, you know, when you're coming to visit and when you leave, they always wave at the door. And uh, when I started thinking about them, I thought, gee, you know, that light. And so that's why I wrote the song about, and I thought, you know, I taught, I learned everything from my parents except what I'm going to do without them one For day. Sure. I'm so lucky to still have them have gotten through the pandemic and, you know, we see each other. We spent a lot of time together, but so it's, again, it's specific where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm invoking kind of maritime ideas and in terms of, uh, you know, the, the salt water and there's a porch light burning on the hill tonight. It's a welcome sign and a welcome sight. That's just what it's like for people who have good relationship with their parents going home right? Or going home to your family. And uh, so I wanted to keep it, you know, specific enough that it kind of was about my story and their story, but, you know, general enough that hopefully other people could relate. Absolutely. Well, I mean, um, I, I also want to talk about just briefly for just a, for a minute or so to talk about uh, four chords and the truth. Tell me about that. Um, where did that come from? Um, and I, and I'm I'm familiar with it because I've seen the Bluebird Cafe stuff and stuff and and things like that because I've, I've I've I'm a huge fan of country music, so I watch a lot of the performances of Bluebird Cafe. Um, and sort of this was this songwriter in the round series, and you feature a lot of appearances by a lot of um artists, Jason McCoy as as an example. But tell me about the the idea behind it quickly and. Uh, uh, why was this important to make? 
Uh, you know, uh, songwriter circles are part of my DNA. I grew up in Nova Scotia um, and many years, God rest his soul, Bruce Guthrow passed away this a couple of months ago. And he's this incredible singer-songwriter from the East Coast of Canada, from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. In the 80s, apparently, he would go down to Nashville and he'd write with people. And he kind of brought the concept of the songwriter circle because he'd gone to the Bluebird Cafe and was part of it back to Nova Scotia. And then it started becoming a thing at like Nova Scotia Music Week and the East Coast Music Awards, and it spread across the country. So all the songwriter rounds that you see happening in industry and industry events, uh, you know, really he brought that concept and he had a show called the Bruce Guthrow Songwriter Circle. When I moved to Toronto, there wasn't really one here that was, uh, that, that wasn't part of the industry, but it was like kind of for the public. Because in the industry, we all know songwriters write songs and the artists sometimes write and sometimes they don't. And sometimes you have songwriters, you know, who you never hear of, which is the beautiful thing about songwriter circles, right? You have the singer songwriters, you know, and sometimes the songs, you know, but maybe the songwriters you haven't heard of yet. And so, you know, my very first show, I think, was a song, in Bruce Guthrie's songwriter circle, my very first industry showcase. But when I came to Toronto... This was uh, like in the, mm, after I made Lemonade. There really wasn't one here. There was one, Songwriters Association of Canada had one, Bluebird North. Um, but that again, that was kind of industry. So I started one at Say What for other singer-songwriters I was working with, who I thought were great, but the people needed to hear in the public. I did that for a few years. And then with kind of everything else I was doing, I, it kind of went by the wayside. Um, I shouldn't say it went by the way, I didn't have time to keep it up. It kind of probably had run through most of the songwriters I knew at that time. And uh, and then in 2015, I was just writing a lot with a, an exceptional group of people. And one in particular, Liz Rodriguez, who's an incredible singer songwriter, but not necessarily a performing artist all the time. And so we had written a bunch of songs and I just really wanted people to hear. And so I thought, oh, we need another songwriter circle in Toronto again. And um, so I, I just so, sorry to interrupt you because this the Zoom is gonna cut off. Um, oh, okay. And and so I, I've got to wrap it up quickly here. Oh, okay, uh, so I'll be really quick. So I started Four Chords in the Truth at the Dakota Tavern. All right. Uh, well, it's the end of our time together. But thank you so much for chatting with me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Roots Americana singer songwriter, president founder of Four Chords in the Truth, Andrea Englund. Um, thank you so much, and you can connect with thank Andrea. You. For be uh, you can connect with Andrea on all social media platforms. You can visit her website um, that I will link as well. Um, but I've been your host, Shubhi Kelsing. Thanks for tuning into the show.